Welcome, guys, to another episode of the Evolution Podcast. So today we're going to be talking about taxes. Listen, I don't know if you guys know this, but you know, if you the more money you make, the more the government takes. So we're going to talk about tax strategists here with the man himself, Thomas. If you want to go ahead and introduce yourself, hi, yes, uh, thanks for having me here today. Uh, my name is Thomas Costelli, and I'm a CPA uh, and tax strategist, and I work with real estate investors to help them keep more of their hard-earned dollars in their pockets. And how do the governments uh, through like tax strategy and planning? Got you. Also, guys, if anyone from the IRS is watching this, just want to get let you guys know that we'll be doing a very friendly conversation and it will be all legal advice. But uh, Tom, so talk to me. So how'd you get started in the business? Yeah. So um, basically, long story short, I went to college for accounting. My parents always told me to go to college for accounting. And I really didn't know what else to do at the time. So went ahead and did that. And then kind of like while I was in college, I realized I'm like, all right, this whole entire like the nine to five grind isn't going to quite get me to where I want to go. So I started reading a bunch of books like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, um, books like that. And there was this common theme in there about real estate. So uh, when I was when I was my last year of college, my senior year, I started attending uh, networking events and meetup groups uh, regarding real estate investing. And what I, I ended up meeting this group that was doing uh, a three day weekend on syndication and I decided to go to their boot camp prior to starting my first job, my first full-time job that summer. And from there, I fell in love with real estate syndication, the model, how that worked. And kind of from there, the rabbit hole goes pretty deep. Now, um, I was working at a big, at a large firm for a while, but uh, then I came to the conclusion that like corporate, the corporate world isn't really quite where I wanted to be. So I ended up teaming up um, with, uh, with Brandon Hall here at the firm that I'm at now. And uh, that's how I kind of got into uh, marrying my tax background with uh, my my passion for real estate investing and, and became a tax strategist for real estate investors. So for those people who aren't familiar with syndication, what real estate syndication is, do you mind just giving like a quick pointer on what real estate syndication is? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So when, when you, it, as a real estate investor, you can go buy a property yourself, right? You go put the down payment and then you go ahead and go to the bank or you obtain other financing to... Uh, to go ahead and buy that property. Now, with larger properties like apartment buildings or office buildings, retail centers, um, and other and other similar properties, sometimes they're so expensive that it's really challenging, if not sometimes impossible, for really one. I don't want to say impossible, but really challenging for one person to take down uh, themselves. So what ends up happening is people will pu pull their money together uh, to go ahead and buy a property. So. Uh, typically how these transactions work is you'll have a general partner or a sponsor they'll be in charge of running the deal so they'll identify the property they'll do the due diligence on the property they'll go get the financing from the bank and then they'll raise money from investors uh, also known as limited partners or passive investors and those limited partners will provide the equity for the down payment and typically the the renovation budget and and other and other expenses associated with the transaction in exchange for a, an equity stake in that property. Uh, so basically, it's it's kind of like uh, it's basically a bunch of people owning a property together, effectively. Got you. So okay, so what what's stopping uh, an individual like, for instance, Grant Cardone? Because I know Grant Cardone has like the accredited and the non-accredited investor. Are you familiar with Grant Cardone? Yep. Yep. Yeah. So now, what's stopping the you know? somebody from just saying, you know what, I'm going to go and just do the business with the bank. I'm going to buy this property and I'm going to have the bank with me as a partner. How, why, why not just go with a bank? But it's certainly possible to do that. However, let's just say, for example, you're looking to buy a $50 million building, right? Uh, let's just say that you had to bring a down payment to that at 20% or 25% down payment to that. You're looking at 12.5 million plus closing costs, plus um, renovation budget. So you're looking at a significant amount of upfront capital you need to take down that property. And sure, while a high net worth individual might be able to do that themselves, uh, if if you're not a high net worth individual, typically uh, it would be it would be very challenging for you to do. So that's kind of why syndications uh, kind of are, exist to help people take down these larger properties to give investors an opportunity uh, to get access to these larger properties where they might not uh, they might not be able to in other cases. Got you. So like, let's say I'm an everyday individual and let's say I make about a hundred grand a year, uh, hypothetically. Um, and I just wanted to, you know, I want, I really wanted to own real estate. Right. And I know, Hey, I want to get into the apartment building, which is, you know, you know, 14, 15 doors and it's 1.6 million. And now I'm like, okay, the 
bank is asking for, you know, 20% down or whatever it is. And I, I mean, 20% down at 1.6 million is, is what? 320 grand. Right. So it's like most people don't have 320 grand. So then you'd go like, Hey, so will it, will it, is it a situation where you would, you would form a syndication to come up with 1.6 or is it a form of syndication to come up with a down payment? Yeah. So typically you, you formed a down payment. Um, and then you would go to the bank and get the financing, uh, from the bank, um, from there or another lender. Got you. Okay. So now I'm very curious what's your take on this, right? So, because I really want to talk about that, but do you think, remember the 2008 crash that happened with mortgage bonds, the whole nine yards, right? Do you think commercial real estate is probably going to be one of, one of the signs that we're headed towards a recession? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so the interesting thing, you know, so back into 2008, what kind of happened was a lot of people, the 2008 crisis came down to it that there was banks and other lenders that were giving mortgages to people who did not quite qualify for them. And mm -hmm. so people were taking on too much debt and then they'd roll up these mortgages into these, um, what they call the mortgage, mortgage backed securities and would sell them. And the appetite for that investment product became so strong that they kept doing this. And then what ended up happening is people couldn't pay back their loans and the financial system kind of collapsed on itself. And that's kind of what led to, like long story short, what led to the 2008 financial crisis. And I think this time around, for the most part, it's a little bit different. Uh, banking um, has, the lenders have much stricter standards. So you're not seeing all these subprime mortgages going out and people who who can't afford to pay it back. So I don't think you'll you'll see that as as cause for recession necessarily. I think though, what is going on the um, what it, what is an issue is the high interest rates that you're mm -hmm. seeing right now is causing people to have less discretionary income, right? Like two years ago, I was looking at a property that I was going to buy personally from personal use, and I could have gotten a two point like eight three percent interest rate on that. Um, that same property now, depending, you know, is have upwards of an eight percent interest rate. So now there's a few thousand dollars delta on a monthly payment that I would have, you know. Assuming I bought the same property, could have spent on anything else, um, and that is leading. And and now because people don't have that money because housing has increased, then that's that's one thing that could lead to a recession. There's also a few other factors going on right now. Uh, for example, uh, the pause on student loans also uh, came due, or or was recently came due, if I'm not mistaken. Uh -huh. So that means all the people who were deferring payments during COVID effectively on their student loans now all of a sudden have this other expense that they have to, that they have to uh, pay. And that takes this money out of their pockets. They could pay for discretionary income. And then you have the rise in gas prices that, that, you know, now have pretty much stabilized for the most part, at least in where I live. But um, a few years ago, they were much lower. So all of this takes money out of people's pockets and makes it harder to do business, right? And then one last thing I'll, I'll say is that the higher interest rates also make it harder for business owners to expand their business and create more jobs. So um, between when you combine that with the fact that there's less discretionary income floating around out there, um, that could lead to the recession that, that we're seeing. I don't think it's going to be the housing market in and of itself. Gotcha. So if I'm recapping understanding, it's just the fact that people don't have that much money in to spend per se. So so in this instance, too, so what, what I'm what I'm what I'm thinking of, because most people don't understand what a recession is, right? Most people don't understand. Can you can you just give a little bit of explanation? Like how what are the signs you would know from a perspective, you know, from your perspective of being in a recession? Yeah, that that's a great question. Uh, some signs of being in a recession is that uh, this is a tough one. This is a tough one. I haven't uh, I haven't broken down a recession in a while. But basically, a recession is when people aren't when when the gross GDP is not growing at is actually taking a negative step back. Like the gross mm. domestic product that the country is 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 doing, and that's mm -hmm. usually um, as a result of some of these factors that 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 I had mentioned. So if there's it, it's it's mostly the monetary cycle and 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 lending, right? Because if if Interest is at eight percent. If I want to go buy, say for example, say I'm a business owner, say I own uh, a manufacturing company, just for example, and I want to go expand to a new plant. Well, now I need to go take out a loan to go buy that new mm -hmm. that new place, or I need to take out a loan to buy new equipment, so on and so forth. I need that capital from somewhere, and that cost of capital is now increased, so that might prohibit me from actually going expanding the uh, the uh, the my business or 
the cost of capital could actually cause me to have to shrink my business because you know, where say I had a loan that was coming due on some, on a piece of my business that now I have to renew at this higher interest rate. Well, I might not be able to afford that higher interest, that loan now at this higher interest rate, causing me to have to potentially shut down part of the business. Right. And because of that, there's less being produced and that, and it kind of in, in a, in a nutshell, at least in, in like, in, in a nutshell, the way I see it, it creates a recession. Interesting. So if, if you, if, uh, because I'm the way I'm looking at it from a perspective of, okay, so you have the Fed raising interest rate, right? I think what it's at 8% now, right? Uh, the current interest rate, especially around. 8%. Yeah. I mean, I looked at the mortgage rates the other day. It was like over 8%. If you had, even if you had like good credit, like 760 plus. So, yeah. Which is interesting because the people that it benefits of cash buyers, right? So if someone's, which even, even though I was a cash buyer, right? Is it even advisable to pay a ridiculous amount of money for it? Like you pay 600 grand for a house that was worth 200 and you still have to get work done for another, you know, 50, 60 grand, you know? Yeah. No, I, it, it, it depends. Like I, yeah, well, paying, paying, uh, Paying six hundred thousand for a house that was worth two hundred thousand probably not going to be your best bet, um, be just because like the delta of how much you'd have to improve the value to make that investment worthwhile is so high that it can make it highly risky. So like I would say like if you're going to like it depends like if you're going to slightly overpay for a property in a market that you know is booming right now and is most likely going to continue to boom and prices are going to continue to appreciate, that risk might be worth taking. But most prudent investors will say that uh, you, you want to buy below replacement costs. You want to uh, buy below intrinsic value. Mm -hmm. So if the property is valued at six hundred thousand. You want to buy at five uh, at two hundred thousand. You want to buy at one fifty. You want to buy at one twenty five. You want to buy less than that because then you have this big. You have a lot of safety. But what ends up happening, especially at the top of the market, is people start overpaying for assets, and that's when you know you kind of peaked. And that what's going to come next is going to come the recession. So to answer your question, I don't. It depends, but overall, I, it's hard for me to recommend buying, you know, at inflated prices. You know, it's interesting because it's 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 people who pay cash for uh, a property that wasn't worth anything. Usually, consumers just like, hey, I'm moving from California right. and I want to come here and buy. It. So I'll give you a, a story. Someone, um, so there's this is not a personal story, man, but there's a friend of mine telling me his barber. Apparently, his barber, his house was worth two fifty, two hundred, and now the house is worth four thirty, four thirty, four sixty, give or take. And he's like, dude. I'm going to sell. And he wants to sell the house. Like he really wants to sell. But the reason why he wants to sell is because he's like, all right, I'm going to sell and I'm going to go live and rent for like, you know, two or three years and wait for the market to tank. And then I'll buy. So buying his interest rates. Now, I was thinking from a perspective of that's capital gains tax, right? right? Because you made, you know, you make the spread of 200. But most people don't think about capital gains tax, right? right. So how what is capital gain? If just this is just a very interesting question. What's capital gains tax on a property that you're selling? And is there a way to avoid it? Right, right. So, so, so capital gains tax is basically when you buy a property, right, you're going to buy it with a purchase price. And over time, it's going to inflate, increase in value, or at least you would hope, right? It appreciates in value. So capital gain is going to be the difference between the amount you, the, the difference between the amount you're selling it for and the amount you bought it for. Now, how can you avoid that tax? Well, for personal residences, if you're, if it's your primary residence, uh, you can typically ex exclude up to $250,000 of capital gains from tax if you lived in the house for more than uh, for at least two out of the last five years. Um, and that's mm. that doubles from 250 to 500,000 if you're married. So if that's if you have a primary residence, uh, that's known as the home sale exclusion. And many people qualify for that if they've been living in a property for a long time. So that's a great way to avoid taxes on the sale of your residence. But if it's an investment property, things get a little bit different and you can't use the home sale exclusion for the most part, or it's it's not going to be the most viable strategy in all cases. So you're going to be looking at using a strategy like the 1031 exchange to defer your capital gains tax. And the way the 1031 exchange works, long story short, is you sell your property and you find a replacement property as they call it and you buy that replacement property you do the 1031 exchange and now you've deferred the capital gains tax the capital gains uh and you kick the can down the road because you use the sales proceeds from your original property to buy another property so for, from a, from a personal residence standpoint home sale exclusion can allow you to to exclude again up to 500k in gains if you lived there for the last two out of the last five for at least two out of the last five years or if it's an investment property you're going to want to look at a strategy like the 1031 exchange to help you defer the capital gains taxes to a later point in time 
Got you. So like, I just wanted, so just to curious. So let's say, you know, I, I, I have an investment property and let's say I sell my investment property and based on the equity, I'm, you know, made like 300, 400 grand. And I'm like, all right, you know what? Uh, I'm just going to wait before I buy the next one. Even though I didn't live it, it's just an investment property. Now, is there a timeline for which I can use the 1031 exchange or is it more of like, uh, you know, Hey, you can, you know, you can take your time. Yeah. So you do have a time limit. So with the 1031 exchange, for uh you have 180 days from the date that you sell your property to acquire at least one property that you identified right so okay let me break it down like this so when you did, from the date you sell your property of the first in the first 45 days from the date you sell your property you have to identify typically up to three properties that you want to acquire as the replacement property or as the new property that you're going to buy into now, uh, within now from there, you have a, a total of 180 days from the date of sale, including this 45 day period to close on one or more of these properties. So there are timelines to this. And uh, one more thing to note about 1031 exchanges is that you have to use you have to work with what's known as a qualified intermediate intermediary or a QI. And what they do is they when you close on when you sell your original property, they take possession of the funds that you from the sale of your property and hold it in escrow until you're ready to buy that replacement property and then they go ahead and release that money from escrow to this to the uh, the seller of your new property so that you can go ahead and, and buy it if you actually take possession of those proceeds at the closing table for your property you just sold then you just killed your 1031 exchange so what i'm trying to say here is that you're going to want to work with a qi if you're considering using a 1031 exchange you're going to want to work with a QI so that they take possessions of the funds of your sold property so that you don't blow the 1031 exchange. And then you're going to want to realize that there's a 45 day period to identify properties to buy. And then a total of 180 days, basically six months to close on one of those properties. Oh, that's interesting, man. Cause I, I knew about the 1031 exchange, but I don't think there's, I mean, you broke it. The fact that the QI, cause I was like thinking you liquidate and you're like, all right, I'll take the money. And then next, you know, you're like, IRS is like, well, Hey, listen, you forgot to give us our cut, which is, which is very, very, that's, that's just, that that's, that's fascinating per se. Just, just thinking about that now in the tax in the tax. So this is a very funny one. So, you know, when people say rich people don't pay taxes, they don't pay any taxes, you know, they're, they're you know, like for instance, people like, you know, a lot of people like pesos didn't pay any taxes. And can you explain to us how it is that, you know, you have wealthy individuals legally are able to go without paying taxes? Right. So they might be able to pay no income taxes or very low income taxes. I find the the, the phrase, the rich pay no taxes, just not true. Mm -hmm. um, the rich do the rich like Jeff Bezos, for example, he his company, Amazon, employs thousands and thousands of people. They're paying they're paying taxes. They're paying like the FICA taxes on behalf of their employees. So they are paying taxes and there's other taxes in there. So it's, that's not quite true, but there are strategies that do allow rich people to pay little to no um, income tax. And the way that kind of works is specifically real estate. Uh, there's something uh, called the real estate professional status. And what the real estate professional status allows real estate investors to do is to take the losses generated by their rental properties and use those losses to offset their active income or their earned income. And that's one way they could uh, basically pay no taxes. So to kind of dive just a little bit deeper into that, basically when you buy a rental property, it's going to depreciate over time. And depreciation is a, a non-cash expense that you have on your profit and loss statement that can cause you to have a tax, a loss for tax purposes, despite the fact that you might've generated cash flow. So give a quick example of what that might look like. Let's say you had a rental property that had $10,000 in rental income, and then you had $5,000 of actual expenses, property taxes, maintenance, insurance, property management fees, so on and so forth. Now you're left with about $5,000 of cash. Now, in most businesses, you're going to end up paying tax on this $5,000 of cash. However, uh, now you enter this non-cash expense called depreciation that only exists on paper. And you might have a $6,000 depreciation expense. So now you have a $1,000 tax loss, despite the fact that you just pocketed $5,000. So that's one way. That's one way they do it. Now, what happens with this, this loss, this $1,000 loss, well, there's, this, there's, there's these rules under the tax code um, known as the passive activity rules or, or, or other, otherwise called section 469, if we want to get technical. But 
what they do is they say that losses from rental real estate are passive and can only offset other passive income and can't offset income earned from, say, a job or an active business that you're running. However, the real estate professional status allows uh, allows investors to get around that if they spend more than 750 hours and more than half their total working time in real estate. So that's one way wealthy people who are working full time in real estate, effectively full time in real estate, can pay little to no taxes. But there's another way. And this strategy is known as like buy, borrow, die. And um, okay. basically, basically, it's where you buy. This works with rental properties and also works with stocks. So I'll kind of give an example of both. So let's say you buy a rental property, you're renting it out, you're collecting your cash flow, everything's going really well, property is appreciating, but you don't want to sell the property, right? You don't want to sell the property because you like the property. It's a good investment for you, but you need cash. And now all of a sudden you have all this equity that was built up in that property over time, right? Because now the, the, the property is appreciated and you have, you could go to the bank then and get a loan out on that property or refinance that property, T take the cash. Now that cash that you got from that refinance is going to be tax free. You're not going to pay any tax on it. Mm -hmm. um, and now you still keep your property and now you have all this cash tax free. That's one way. Now you can do the same thing with stocks. And this is actually how Elon Musk bought Twitter or X now. Um, basically, what he did is he took his test, he took a loan out against his Tesla stock, the value of his Tesla stock. So he used his Tesla stock as collateral. The bank gave him a tax free loan. And then he went and bought Twitter. And now he still kept his Tesla stock and he now owns Twitter. So that is another way that the rich pays little to no taxes. They have a business that they basically, they own a business, they increase its value, and then they take loans out against their business and they don't pay, they don't, they pay themselves like a little salary and they take loans out against their business. And that's how they tap into that, that equity and into that cash source. So I'm curious now, what happens if they default, if they keep defaulting, what happens to the business? Cause you use, it's a secured loan for the most part. Right. Yeah, if they default, they might they might get their they might lose their their stock. Um, so what people would do, or they might the bank might foreclose on the house. So what people would be prudent to do is is use debt wisely and 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 hopefully not leverage to the hilt. Like if you if Elon Musk, for example, who's throwing out a number, owns ten million dollars in Tesla stock, he might only take out a loan of four million dollars against that Tesla stock because now he's he doesn't like that loan. Put it out, put it this way. He would have to sell for only $4 million of his Tesla stock of his 10,000, his $10 million Tesla stock to pay that loan back. So it's about, it's risk. It's, it's risk management and debt management. It comes down to making sure that they don't lose their, their assets. So this is where I'm, I'm curious now. I'm asking you this question. Do you think incurring some element of debt per se and being able to manage debt is very essential to success, especially in business or in any realm? I don't want to say it's essential. You, uh, there's certainly people out there who who succeeded without debt, but debt is an extremely useful tool in allowing you to uh, to generate significant amounts of wealth. It's a it's a great tool for leverage. Um, for example, with real estate, if you were to just buy a house cash, right? Say you would buy a six hundred thousand dollar house cash. Let's just say that property was generating four thousand dollars a month in rental income. Right. And now you have twelve thousand dollars at twelve months. That's forty eight thousand dollars. Now you're dividing that by six hundred thousand dollars. That was your investment. That's in that's gonna be an eight percent return, right? So you yeah. have forty eight thousand dollars divided by six hundred. It's six hundred thousand, and you're gonna have you have eight percent. But now let's say that you were able to use leverage, right? Now let's say you took that same six hundred thousand dollar property, you put a twenty-five thousand dollar down payment on it excuse me, 25% down payment on it. So that's 150 K. Now that property still generated, let's say it generated 48,000, but now you have debt. I'm sorry, this is oversimplifying it, but now let's say you have debt is, let's just say the debt's half of that, right? Hmm. Now you have $24,000, but your $24,000 is only against $150,000. And now you have a 16% return. So, being able to use debt allows you to acquire more assets and 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 get higher returns. Additionally, like another example is with appreciation. Like if you were to invest that same, let's say you were to invest six hundred thousand dollars in stock, right? 
Well, now you have $600,000 in stock that's earning or that you're earning a return of 600,000. But if you leverage that, if you leverage it and now you, you buy say $1.2 million in stock, well, now your, your same $600,000 is earning, you're earning income or appreciation on $1.2 million rather than 600. Mm -hmm. So leverage allows you to effectively Mac, um, What's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, magnify your returns. That's what leverage does for you. Got you. But then, did you know it's interesting because there's a whole um, what's his name? Uh, my God, is famous. Uh, my God, he's the guy that debts bad for you. Uh, you. I know you know him, Dave Ramsey. Yeah. Yeah. So you know you have the whole you have a Dave Ramsey because I listen to Dave, Dave Ramsey and I listen to Grant Cardone and I like to take both sides with the whole of the of the to make it a very logical decision. But you know you have one side where it's like debts bad. Don't ever get in debt because, you know, whoever is a, has in debt is a, is a servant to the, the, the debtor. But then again, you also see that, you know, 90% of businesses and successful companies all have debt. Right. Now, this is where I'm also, which kind of segues into this, because this, this, this question I have for you. So you've heard of creative financing, right? Which is wholesaling mm -hmm. and people who are like want to go into wholesaling where you basically, you know, basically just, you know, hey, this, you find sell at a buyer and, you know, get on a contract, the whole nine yards. I'm still kind of skeptical about it, you of know, what, of creative, creative finance, because it just, uh, there's a lot of it that doesn't like necessarily, like, I don't know, it just feels like a lot can go wrong. Right. Right. Like, is there a specific type of, there's like a lot of different creative financing techniques so, out there. So we have one where, and, and I'm pretty sure, and I, I am actually going to take the course because I'm very, very, I want to learn. I'm very curious about it because I real estate something where, um, it's a very, it's a tangible asset and you're in business with the government and the government likes people that own stuff because they know you keep the cash, you know, keep the money going. In, in the sense is to, you know, let's say I find a seller and a buyer mm -hmm. and, you know, the seller's like, hey, you know, we, we, we're going to lose this house. If not, you come in, you make the one month payment, you get it on the contract, you find a buyer, they make a deposit of 25, 20 grand, you keep that. But then now you are responsible for basically whenever they make the payments to you so you can service the bank. Right. Right. Okay. So what happened? Huh? Oh, okay. I, I'm sorry. Did you, you get, you get my point there in, the, in, the, yeah. in that perspective. So it's still kind of a little bit like what happens if, you know, there's defaults is all that stuff. Cause now you're like, now you just put yourself as a middleman or, you know, that's position. Yeah. It sounds like section eight, maybe. Um, the, yeah, there's, there's, there's always risk in creative financing. There's risk in, in, in anything. It's just a matter of what, you know, what your risk tolerance is and, you know, are you, are you able to handle it? And are you prepared to handle it? Do you know how to navigate uh, those waters? And if you don't know how to navigate those waters, there's a few options, right? You could not do, you cannot use creative financing, or you can find like a mentor or a community of people who are using these creative financing techniques, uh, the ones that, you know, you're looking to use and, and help you navigate it. So you're not making those mistakes, but no doubt about it. There's certainly risk with, with creative financing and it's, it gets more complex and with complexity usually comes more opportunity to mess something up. So certainly risk there, but I, I think, you know, learning how to use it and learning how to navigate those waters can make you, um, can make you more successful, make you more wealthy than if you, if you did not know how to use it, if you did Interesting. not. Understand. So let's look at it from comparing apples to oranges, right? Cause I don't, I don't think syndication and, and creative finance is the same, but let's say we have, we have an individual right now who is, you know, that same individual is making a hundred grand a year. And they're like, all right, I want to, I want to make money in real estate. Right. And they're like, okay, I can't necessarily pull together and create a syndication or they don't know about syndications, but they know right. Susie down the street. It's like, yeah, I make 50 grand a month. I do creative financing because it's something that you can basically get into for low investment right? right you don't need you don't need quite the same why why should someone you know get into a position where they're having to syndicate as opposed to a position in which they could just go creative financing why what what makes what would you say is the better of the two hmm, yeah that's tough that's definitely a tough one um yeah it's it's tough uh usually creative financing is used with properties um at least in the real estate context with properties that you would take down as an individual right so that comes down to do you want do you like to have control do you want to own the property long term uh, that's that's something to consider right with syndication if you're going to go syndicate a property right if you're going to actually be the syndicator and now you're actually going to be the one in the driver's seat making this happen it can allow you to take down a property that you would not be able to take down yourself um it's a little bit more i mean th there's risk there too but like the syndication it's tried and true you know what you're getting uh there's a model to it 
honestly, this is a hard question to answer because it, it could it can go either way. So I guess it depends on what your goal is. If your goal is to own a property, lock it down long term, that you want to own it, you want to control it, you want to have uh, the majority, if not the entirety of the equity in that property, then you're probably better off going with a creative financing solution. Whereas with syndication, you're giving up a substantial amount of equity. I guess it's the best way to put it. You're giving up a substantial amount of equity, usually somewhere between like 30 to uh, 30 to, you know, anywhere between 20 to 40% of your equity is going to investors and investors are going to have more equity in the deal than you do. And then usually with syndications, there's a cycle with syndications. You're usually going to sell it between five and seven years. So, and you're going to, because you need to keep your investors money moving. So I guess to put it succinctly, if I was going to have to say, which is better, it depends on your situation. If you want to own the property long-term, probably go with creative financing. If you want to buy a property, you want to make a quick, you want to make some money on it. You want to turn it around. You want to sell it within five to seven years using other people's money. Syndication would, might be the way to go, but either there's risk in either strategy for sure. Okay. So what in on one end in on one end with syndication, I'm thinking from a perspective of, okay, I want investors, right? So which means I have to get them to trust me with their money. Let's say we got to pull up 300 grand to deposit 360 to deposit for a $1.6 million house. And I'm thinking about it from a perspective of, okay, I got to get each person, for instance, let's say to put in 50 grand, right? And you have to manage and keep the money moving. Now, from a perspective of one, how would the payouts in the legal structure work amongst the person, you know, who's running the syndicate and the payouts to the investors? And then how do you necessarily keep the money moving so that the, the investors aren't like, you know, losing money? Right, right. So that's a great question. So usually these terms are kind of set up front. So when you when you present your offer to the investors, you're going to say, hey, look, that this is the plan for the property. We're going to hold it for five years. And this is your projected returns. And usually at that point, they're pretty they're pretty content if they if they've invested in these types of transactions before or you educate them properly. If they haven't, then they're usually OK with that. They realize, OK, this is going to be a five year deal. And I'm comfortable getting my money tied up for this rate of return in this structure. Now, as for the actual structure of the deal, there's different ways you can do this. But typically what you'll see is there's kind of two different parts of this. You're going to have you're going to have a preferred return and the preferred return might be, say, 8 percent. And that means that investors are going to get at least 8 percent of their uh, at least a return of 8 percent on their money before the general partner or before the sponsor it gets paid anything. And then beyond that, there's going to be a split. There's typically going to be a split in the profits and sales proceeds or yeah, the, the gain on sale effectively. And that split can be structured. like Basically it's usually structured something like 30% to the sponsor and then 70% to the investors above that 8%. So that's kind of one structure, but it's kind of, you could be flexible in there. Some people do 80% to the investors, 20% to the sponsor, and then things can get more complicated with waterfall structures as they're called. And waterfall structures are, are basically where like not everything is split directly 80, 20, right? It could be split 80, 20 up until a certain point of return. And then, and then split a different way beyond that, like 50, 50 beyond that. So uh, the, the structure of these deals can, you can get creative in the way, I guess you could say, or there's some room for flexibility in how these are structured, but, uh, that's kind of how it's done in a nutshell. Interesting. So, you know, okay. So now I, I want to, which brings me to my next question. So I'm watching this right now and I'm like, you guys are talking about some crazy numbers, 1.6 million, 360 grand talking about syndication, creative financing. And, 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 you know, we have an individual that's watching this right now. That's probably making, you know, 30, 40, 35,000 a year. Cause the average income is what I think 30 or 50 grand. I think yeah. the average income in, in the United States. And you're like, well, this is of no value to me, but then, you know, you offer a program called a, the Vita program, Vita program. So, so the Vita program, that's that I, we, I don't, I don't, I don't offer that. We have, um, we do have a program tax smart REI though. Okay. Okay. So what, can you explain a little bit more that what, but, uh, what that entails? Yeah, absolutely. So tax smart real estate investors is all about helping people who want to invest in real estate or, or are currently investing in real estate, leverage the tax code to minimize to minimize their taxes, basically, to minimize their tax liability. So it's like, okay, basically, the tax code is this big complex blob of legal jargon, effectively. Mm -hmm. And most people, you know, most people are not educated on that through their education in public school. And unless you go to school to become an attorney or tax or an accountant, 
your, your chances are you have no idea that this world, you know, how deep this world goes. So what we do is we break down these complex strategies that are found within the tax code into a very clear and digestible way that investors can can use to apply these strategies to their situation and minimize their taxes. So that's what TaxSmart REI, uh, TaxSmart REI or TaxSmart Real Estate Investors is, and uh, that's what it helps them do. How would how would somebody how would somebody basically get into the program? I just realized my mic went off. <laughs> so. No problem. So yeah, so if someone want to learn more about tax smart investors, there's a few ways to do it. I, I would suggest maybe starting with the podcast. Uh, so we do have a podcast, Tax Smart REI, out on basically all major podcast platforms, and then we have a Facebook community. Um, that's www.taxsmartinvestors.com/facebook. Uh, um, it's a great community where people are asking questions, and it's free, so free to join. Then we have an insiders community that people could join at taxsmartinsiders.com slash insiders and they can get a 30 day free trial. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. And the links are going to be in the description guys. So if you guys want to check it out, if it's something you want to invest in, if you want to reduce your tax bill, which I don't know, you know, the, the you know, that would say this, the, the, most people will say that rich people get taxed uh, usually, usually in a W2 uh, environment. And that's because, you know, they get taxed before they get their money. And I, I always say this, if you make a million dollars as a W2 income earner, it's, it, I mean, you might as well just, I'm not going to say the word because, you know, but because you, it's almost useless because the government gets the money ahead of time before you do versus you don't have, you can't right. leverage, you, you can leverage incentives, but if you make 700 grand and you already, they already paid 350 grand in taxes before you saw the money. It's like, you know, yeah. it's, it's a no brainer, but, but now in a sense is to, what about if someone's watching this, right. And saying, you know what, I don't think the, the economy is stable enough. I don't think, you know, you know, there's people think that world war three is going to happen. Someone is like, Oh my God, you know, we need to stock up on canned food or during the pandemic stock up on toilet paper. <laughs> and so, and they're like skeptical about investing in real estate. Is there anything you could say to that individual right now that's watching this? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, the way I look, the way I look at it is this: real estate. There's still very, very good fundamentals on real estate. What I mean by that is there's a lot of demand for real estate and not that much supply. We have an undersupply and over demand, and that's caused by millennials and Gen Z. They're coming of age to the point where they're ready to buy property, but there there's just not that much out there. So if you were to buy real estate and you're able to finance it properly and hold it for the long term you're going to be in a good position regardless of how the economy does. Right. Um, so it's just a matter of if you, if you zoom out a little bit and look at the long term, you, you'll see that real estate is, is still a very solid asset to own and, and you, it, there shouldn't be much risk. I think where people get into trouble is where they take too much of their capital, their invest, their, the, the money that they have and pour it into real estate. And then they've run into trouble in other areas of their life. Right. And so the way I would, my, my suggestion there would be to have an emergency fund, right? Allocate your money. Okay. Here's how much I can invest. Here's how much I need to save in the event that I lose my job or my business starts to suffer, whatever the case is. And then you have that runway, you have that capital or your, your emergency fund that you can tap into to fund your expenses and still keep and still keep your assets intact. So yeah, I, I don't think real estate, the, the wall is not, the, the ceiling is not falling on real estate. There's still a lot of opportunity in the space. And if you budget your money right and, and, and finance the properties right, there, there should be no reason to really to worry. Interesting. Interesting there. So now, which which kind of brings me into this position here, Mike, my, my, for some reason, having a little bit of technical, uh, technical issues there. Um, in the real estate side of things, so how much would you say would be a recommended income to have for the most part to be able to. So like, for instance, let's say someone's got a thousand dollars saved up. Is that, should they be taking a thousand dollars and investing in real estate? No, no, I would not recommend investing a thousand dollars in real estate, at least not in like physical real estate. Um, if you have a thousand dollars, that's, that's a great question. If you have a thousand dollars, a good place to invest it might be the stock market might be best put it, putting it into an index fund. Or some people would say, take that thousand dollars and invest it into your own education. The best investment is yourself. So uh, go invest it in a course or something along those lines that will provide you the ability to learn a skill that that can help you uh, generate even more money. So I'd say probably go through if you're looking for like a true quote unquote investment. I'd say it's probably best to put that money 
probably an index an index fund. But if you're gonna if you want to like invest in yourself, grow your skill set, be able to earn more money, I'd say go go invest that in a course that's gonna give you that skill. What would you say is, a, is an ideal number to invest in real estate, even if you're going to go either, you know, if you want to go in a syndication per se, what would you say is a good number to put in? Yeah, absolutely. For syndication, you typically need a minimum of $25,000. Um, okay. some, sometimes you need a minimum even more than of 50000 So it it depends. Like that's typically twenty five to 50 is usually the minimum for, so for is a that, lot is of that, Is that 25 to 50 for an accredited or is it non-accredited? Like what's the, what's the... Yeah. So, so basically... The for it would be the same in either case. Uh, so not so accredited. So the way accredited accredited investors work is accredited investors have the opportunity to invest in syndications that are marketed. So as a sponsor, if you start a syndication and you use what's known, there's some exemptions that allow you to not be considered a security or other, like not be regulated by the SEC the Securities and Exchange Commission, one of those is 506C. That's by far the most popular exemption. And that allows investors to, uh, that allows sponsors to go and market their investments on podcasts like this or on the internet, wherever they want to go and do it. And they could take unlimited amounts of investors, but they have to be accredited. So you can't invest in those deals if you're not an accredited investor. Uh, but then there's another exemption, 506B, that does allow you to take up to 35 non-incredited investors into the deal. And uh, that you can't market though, that you have to have a pre-existing relationship. So these opportunities at 25 that $50,000 could be available in either case. Now, just real quick, just to, how do you qualify as an accredited investor? You have to, there's a few different ways, but you either have to have a net worth of a million dollars or more excluding your primary residence or make 200, $200,000 or more for the last two years with the expectation to make it this year, or if you're married, that bumps up to 300. Um, so it's a little bit easier if you're maybe, maybe in some cases, if you're married, but that's kind of how you qualify as an credit investor and how the two, uh, like so what the differences are. Why would, why would just, so what's the, what's the premise behind the income? Is it, is it more of a, pres a presumption of like, Hey, this person is not putting your life savings in this. They can afford to lose the money or what's the necessarily the premise behind, you know, you gotta have 200 to 300 grand. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, these rules were put into place back in the eighties. Um, and so, so here's the thing with, with syndications, they're not regulated by the government. So they're exempted from regulation. So if you go invest in a stock, uh, there's a lot of paper. There's a lot of like requirements that publicly traded companies have to provide to their shareholders. You have all these court, you have these audited financial statements that are audited by accounting firms and basically certifying that these financial records are are meet certain standards and certain quality uh, of of standards, and that there's a certain amount of information that's disclosed, which makes these investments quote unquote safer, depending on how you look at it. Um, whereas in private investments, like syndicated investments. These sponsors, the people who are running these deals, don't have these reporting requirements. They don't have to have audited financial statements in, in many cases. They don't have to disclose a certain amount of information to you. So the thought process behind this was is that this is going to prevent this. This is going to prohibit people or, or limit people from losing their shirts in a private investment. Like, say, you go and put $50,000 into a private deal and the sponsor was not and I'm not trying to scare anybody here, but the sponsor was not totally transparent on how the deal was going to run, or maybe they're inexperienced, the sponsor's inexperienced, and loses everybody's money. Well, now all of a sudden, you just lost $50,000. Mm. And if you were not above these thresholds, that could significantly hurt you, right? Um, so that's kind of the premise behind it. But they've actually started to come out with different rules um, around this. Like recently, they passed a law that the SEC is going to have to make a test and that if you pass that test, then you will be considered an accredited investor. And that opens up that that basically makes the income requirement not as, uh, not as limiting as it once was. Right. So if you pass this test, you prove that you're educated on how these types of investments work, then you're going to be considered accredited. And, but to answer your question, it's to protect it, protect people who uh, who might not be able to sustain a a, lo a significant loss in capital? Got you. Interesting. Interesting. So it's a protection. It's a protection mechanism. Now I'm I'm very curious because I was watching the other day. I wish I could play it, but my computer's been going crazy. Um, you know, a lot of Gen Zers 
are like, I don't want to own, I don't want to buy a house because it's tying me down to like, you know, my, you know, I have to stay here, I have to work this job, I have to do this, I have to do that, I have to do this. So what do you think about the movement of people not of 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 the renter market growing per se? Because now we're getting into more of a, a renter economy than we are basically in the homeowner economy. Yeah, you know, for, for sure. I think it's definitely interesting in like the internet and the ability to work remotely and communicate remotely and Airbnb and the ability to travel, you know, wherever you want to go so much more easier, uh, so much more easily uh, has has definitely changed the economy for sure. And I, I see the, the, the Gen Z uh, point of view. So like, well, I like, and I'm kind of, I'm not Gen Z, but I'm in a similar boat where I'm renting where I live right now, but I'm still investing in real estate. So that would kind of be my advice, right? Think about it like this. If you know that the rental economy is growing, then you might as well invest in real estate. Now you don't have to live in that real estate, but if it's, you're investing in that real estate, the demand for rental real estate is going up. That means that your rents will, you know, you know, theoretically go up over time because you have more demand and, and the same supply, right? Or the supply is not keeping up with the demand, at least not now. So that would be a wise kind of choice to do, right? On top of that, as more and more people demand for these rental properties, the actual, the invest, the investor demand for to buy these would also go up. The appreciation would also go up too. So the value of these houses would go up. So I guess what I'm trying to say here is the way I would take a look at it is Rent where you live, right? So that you have the flexibility to travel and you're not tied down to any specific location uh, if you don't want to be, but invest in real estate on, uh, but invest in real estate and rent it to other people so that you kind of get that best of both worlds. And then the worst case scenario, <laughs> worst case, you can just go live in one of your investment properties. That's kind of the way I look at it. Mm. Interesting. Just tell the tenants, hey, move out. I'm moving in now. The boss is moving back in. <laughs> yeah. yeah so how do you how do you find the tenants for those properties? Yeah, so that's a great question. So um, typically you could you could put them on Craigslist. You could put your rental property on Craigslist, apartments.com. You can use uh, apartments.com, Trulia, Realtor.com. There's all these websites that people go to to look for rental properties. So that's kind of like that's kind of like the first stop. And another way you could do it is you could hire a real estate agent or a broker to actually go and find a tenant for you. Now typically uh, depending on what type of deals you're in, if you're, if you're investing in a single family house, you're either, you're most likely going to be finding the tenant yourself, or you're going to hire a property manager and they're going to go find the tenant through like apartments.com, Craigslist, so on and so forth. But if you're buying a larger property, you might have someone go and actually find the tenants for you, like an agent or a broker or a leasing agent, something along those lines. So that's kind of how you'd find it. Either like list it on one of these websites, find it yourself. You could also do signs and things like that. But typically these days they're posted on these websites and that's how most people find tenants. Gotcha. So what's the, okay. So Grant Cardo talks about single family, multifamily home, um, the dangers of single family. What's the danger of being and owning just a single family home? Yeah. The biggest danger in owning a single family home is there's one source of income, right? In that home, on that home. If someone, if, if your tenant stops paying your, their rent, um, and you're unable to evict them, like in some states, it's just really hard to evict people. It takes a while. Then you still have to pay your mortgage, assuming you 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 took out a loan on the property. You still have to pay your till the utilities, the 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 property taxes, the insurance, all that type of stuff. You're still on the hook for all those expenses, but now you don't have an income coming in. You know, whereas if you compare that to a multifamily property that say has ten units, if one unit's vacant or what two units are down for whatever reason, someone's not paying rent or they just need to be renovated. Chances are that those other eight units, so those other eight or nine units are going to be able to cover your expenses so that you're not in the red that, so that you're not like bleeding cash. So, uh, that's kind of the, the risk of having a single family house is just that one source of income. Gotcha. So like, for instance, you were saying something like, I think in the state of New York, you can't evict uh, a tenant, even though they haven't made a payment, right? Oh yeah. I live in New York. And if you, if you, uh, if you basically the eviction process in New York is horrible, it could take, you know, upwards of six months. Some people like in the New York city, like you hear stories about all the time about how a landlord's in a legal battle with their tenant squatting at their apartment for two years. And you're like, okay, imagine having a property where you have someone living in your property tax, you know, rent free for two years. Right. And that's, that's not uncommon. Like this isn't some, that's not just some far-fetched like one-off scenario. Mm. Like that happens all the time in New York. So that's the risk of, of 
of investing in single family. But now there's other states like, for example, Tennessee and, and Ohio, just a few states that I know that 30, that you're out. Like if you don't pay your rent, they'll come and evict you within 30 days and you're out. It's it done. So that process can be very easy in some states, but in other states it's more restrictive. So doesn't that discourage per se, because I'm looking at it from a perspective of like, okay, now I want to rent pro own property in New York and rent it out. It's just like, you know, someone comes in, pays the first two, three months, and next year they're like, oh, sorry, for two years, I'm, I've got free. Doesn't that discourage the, the free market for people to come in and say, hey, you know what, I want to invest more in the real estate in New York? Yeah, I think, I think it does. Um, and there's a few different ways to look at it, right? Uh, part of it is sometimes the state looks at it like we don't want investors buying these properties. We want people who are going to live in these properties to buy these properties. Mm -hmm. Another thing too is like in a city like New York, you don't want people out on the street, right? Like New York is a dense city. Imagine if, you know, everybody who didn't pay their rent just got evicted right away and they couldn't afford to get another lease, right? Now all of a sudden they're out on the street and you're, it causes problems. So depending on the market, it can, it, these protections are sometimes for the consumer and it does indeed discourage investment. And that's, a, that's an issue in and of itself. But so what yeah. about if the landlord says, I'm not going to pay the mortgage? And now the bank is like, hey. Well, then the bank's got to, the, the bank's going to foreclose on the property and either that or they're going to work with the lender. Like sometimes people go into forbearance, right? Like, okay. so for example, say I have a rental, I have a single family rental. My tenant stops paying. I'm going through this lengthy eviction. I can't afford to pay my mortgage payment on the rental property. I might go to my bank and say, hey, look. You know, you, you could take the property back. The bank doesn't want, banks really don't want your property back. Like, cause they're not going to operate your property. They have to sell it. And usually they're going to sell it for less money than it's really worth. So they would prefer in many cases, depending on your lender to work with you to basically say, you know, we'll pause your loan payments. We'll pa pause your loan payments until you can get back on your feet. Now you still might have to pay the interest back in some way, shape or form, but at least you're stalling the foreclosure process. Mm, interesting. No, that, that just kind of give a, a scenario of a guy who back in uh, when the 2008-2009 crash happened, he was a developer, he was a, um, uh, what you call this, he's a contractor and he had this huge land and basically he had like a huge, you know, bunch of defaults and he just like, he's like, dude, I can't, I can't, I can't right. like pay for, I can't pay for this. And uh, he was going to go bankrupt and his lawyers like has the, he's, it's been a year and he's like, did the bank, you know, has the bank come to foreclose? He goes, no. He's like, well, then the bank probably believes that you're still going to make it. And um, I think a year later, the banks came to him and said, hey, we have a buyer for this. So either you start selling this property to this guy or we foreclose and sell this property to this guy. Right, and then, right. yeah, he sold and then he made his money back, which is interesting to think because um, a lot of people think like, oh, the bank's coming out for me. But usually the bank's like, we want to make money. Right. Right the goal is to keep the money flowing not to like get the property and then sell it for like super dirt cheap but yeah no thomas it was great having you on um is there if someone wants to work with you where can they find you yeah the, if, if they want to find if they want to find if they want to find me i'm typically on i'm on most social media platforms but the best way to find me is in the facebook group and that's the tax smart investors facebook group at you could just search uh facebook for tax smart investors and i'm in there so if you want to find me that's probably the best place to find me at this point Okay, guys, so Facebook group, the links will be in the description. So definitely, guys, check out the descriptions, work with Thomas. And, and then again, like I even learned a lot as far as, you know, the one exchange and thinking about syndication or just going to the creative financing, you know, finding buyers and sellers. And if you guys, if it's something you want to do, if you're thinking about, you know, passive income, which I wouldn't really say real estate's passive income because there's a lot of research that goes into it. But um, if you really, if you want to get into the real estate market, then definitely, you know, Click the link in the description. Give Thomas a shout. And uh, Thomas, great having you on. And then again, guys, please don't forget to like the video, subscribe to the channel. And if you're watching us on Spotify, hit that follow button. And then again, it's a pleasure having everyone on. You guys take care. Bye-bye.